Good morning. I'm glad you're here. I'm going to uh, pray here in a moment, and I'm going to pray for something. I'm going to pray for those of you who are visiting with us for the first time and those who are visiting with uh, family members today. I was thinking in some ways it's sort of like you've been invited over to somebody's house just to visit, and um, you're like, hey, yeah, we're going to hang out, and you, you, you kind of get, get comfortable with their, at their house, and then they walk in and they hand you some work gloves and some work boots and a pair of overhauls and say, okay, you need to get your work clothes on. You're kind of like, huh, well, I, didn't, I thought we were just going to hang out. Well, we're not going to hang out. We don't hang out here. We do work. So you're going to need your Bible. Uh, I don't have a talky-talk. I really don't do that. I don't have much to talk about other than, um, at least up here, other than exposing this Bible. So I want to encourage you that if you didn't bring your Bible, grab that Bible in the seat bottom in front of you. And in fact, if you don't have one, you can have that one. And you can put your name in the front and you can make it your own. If you did bring one, we are in Isaiah chapter 8 today. And I'm going to pray for our visitors. I'm going to pray for all of us. And I'm going to pray for another church in our community. We, we'd like to uh, lift up another church each week and uh, ask for God to bless them. So let's pray. Lord, first of all, this morning, I want to lift up another church in our community. I want to pray for Park Street Baptist Church. I want to pray for Johnny Hales. And uh, Lord, we just want to lift him up and his uh, family. Lord, I pray that he is enjoying you. I just... Um, Pray that the rigors of ministry uh, will not um, will actually fan the flame of worship as he draws on you and enjoys you and worships you and um, is in awe of you as he seeks your face we, each week. Uh, Lord, I pray that that will fuel a ministry and sustain a ministry, uh, first to his family and then secondly to Park Street Baptist Church. Lord, we pray for Park Street. Lord, we pray that they uh, are enjoying you this morning, preparing to um, gather for corporate worship, Lord. We pray that they are um, going to see you this morning and experience you. I pray that they'll be equipped for the work of service, uh, that the saints will leave salty and bright and aromatic. Uh, Lord, I pray that um, someone, folks that may be there this morning at corporate worship that may not know you, that they may come to know you through their uh, corporate worship time together. Lord, we're thankful for the opportunity to share a ministry in Greenville with Park Street Baptist Church, and we just pray that you bless them now. Lord, also this morning, I want to pray for those uh, who are with us for the first time this morning, either visiting with a friend or visiting as family members for our baptisms. Lord, I, I pray for, um, first of all, um, for an attitude of work, uh, just a readiness to do some work. Uh, but then, Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit will just do a great and awesome thing in showing family members and friends and loved ones of folks that are here uh, what their families are part of each week, what the meals they're eating each week, uh, that they can celebrate with their family member who's part of us, and that they can celebrate a God that is uh, good to bring them here to this moment this morning. I pray for those who are visiting with us for the first time and may not be here for a baptism or anything like that. Lord, I, I pray for um, faith growth. Um, I pray that folks will hear this message this morning and enjoy the God of the message. Um, pray for the Spirit to do His work. Lord, I pray, him, pray that He will speak in spite of me. I confess this morning I'm feeling rushed because of holiday and because of visitors. Uh, for various reasons, I'm feeling pressure of 
pushing through something and not savoring it. And I confess that and drag that into the light and pray that we can kill it. We can slow down, enjoy you, enjoy your word, and enjoy the story. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Security in 2017 is defined, at least for me, in experiencing life with y'all, experiencing life as a family. Um, I've kind of grouped some things together in a list of things that I think are important to us today. The things that we would think of as we describe security in 2017 in Greenville, Texas. I would list family and a job right at the top. And I put those together because I think folks consider those as most important things in their lives. Hopefully in that order, family and job, but sometimes they get inverted where job may even be more important than family. But I would consider that most people here find some security in our job and find some security in having a family to go home to. I would put after that, maybe on down the list a little ways, maybe not the second on the list, but it's at least second on my list today, is the thought of what happens next. Do we have a plan for retirement? Do we have some plans for what we're going to do for the rest of our lives? A lot of you haven't reached that point yet. And maybe, especially if you work at L3, you're kind of linear and you're planning and you're thinking and you probably have a good plan for the future and find some security. I'm picking on our L3ers because they think that way. Some of us, the rest of us do as well, but... I think we probably find some security in having a plan for the future. I know we find some security in having good insurance. That's something that's considered by most of us in this room. We hear it in the news, whether it's medical insurance or property insurance. I think we appreciate having good insurance. We hope we never need it, but when we need it, we're glad that we have good insurance. We likely uh, might even think about having some purchase insurance when we buy something. Christy's little minivan was at death's door recently, and it was time to move out of the minivan phase. She's paid her dues, so we bought a car, like a real car, and um, I walked into to the dealership, worked out a deal, went back to the finance area, and I told them, look the guy square in the eyes. I didn't do this, but I wanted to. Look at me now, you know, but I'm thinking this, and the first thing I said to him is, I'm not buying an extended warranty. I've never needed one, and I don't need it now. Well, guess what? <laughs> I left with an extended warranty. <laughs> Man, if we find security in things like that, right? I mean, the list goes on. I think it, it, it's interesting. For me, I would consider that I find some security in our legal system. I know in, in our uh, law enforcement agencies, I find some security in that. I know right now that that's a hot-button topic, and a lot of people don't find security in those things. I personally do right now. I, I count those. I, I trust mostly that those things are going to protect us and provide a certain amount of security for us. I find some security in my ability to think through things and process things, my intellect, my mind, and my health. I find some security in those things. And as I'm getting close to 50, I find occasions where I'm looking for a word or looking for a name and I'm like, what is their name? I've known them for 10 years. It happens. And you realize how much you appreciate those things and how much security you can find in those things when they start to, um, to maybe diminish. Um, you probably have some things that you could add to that list. Maybe some of those things you identified with. But here's a question I want to put in front of you this morning. 
Do you trust in those things? Do you trust in those things? It's fitting, I think, and appropriate for us to, to find some security in those things, but, and maybe some measure of trust in those things, but do you, in the whole, trust in those things? I think most of us would hope not, but I think the real tell is when one or more of them is stripped away. I've experienced it as I've walked with you in the last 13 years. I've experienced those occasions personally where we have that look of fright as we're dealing with some sort of loss, as something that we found some security in was stripped away. I've walked with you as we've dealt with questions like, what am I going to do now? How will I provide for my family now? How will I live without my health now? How will we pay for this? What will I do if I can't continue with my plans? I've lived it with you, and if you haven't experienced any of those things yet, they're coming. The things that we so easily trust in will be stripped away. I think they are terrible tutors on trust. I call them terrible tutors because they hurt. But I want to offer to you this morning that they're blessed tutors as well because they teach us and train us on what we can really trust in and what we should trust in. This morning's message is about the surprising and contrary look of well-placed trust. As we talk about things being stripped away from us, We're connecting to a story in the book of Isaiah where things were being stripped away for the the people, the nation of Judah. Things they had been trusting in were being stripped away because they were no longer trusting in their God. And they were getting those terrible tutors on trust. And God gives us this morning a beautiful picture of what trusting in God looks like. What to expect, a beautiful visual of what trusting in God looks like looks like. So chapter 8. I had hoped not to mess with any slides this morning, but I feel like I just gotta, because I know there are lots of folks that aren't with us this morning. I don't want this ever to feel like a seminary class, okay? It's not. This is the people of God being equipped for the work of service, uh, understanding what God has done for us in Christ, but there's some teaching that has to take place, especially in a book like Isaiah, okay? So I'm going to take just a moment and give you sort of a bird's eye Uh, view of what we're talking about. Give me those first couple slides there, or this first one. This is good. I introduced this slide a couple of weeks ago. I got my handy-dandy pointer here. Thank you, Jeff Willingham. I get to do some cool things with it, harass the cat, and then do this. So now let let me give you a little background here. The slides that were in front of this are what goes left of here is creation. Obviously, that's way, way out there, way over there somewhere. And that little jagged line indicates that we don't know how far back Opinions differ on that, but we're not dealing with that this morning. Uh, also back here would be the call of Abraham. Also back here would be uh, King David being um, placed as the king of Israel. This would be, King David would be about, oh, I'm going to put in front of that, uh, Moses and the Exodus, leading God's people out of Egypt about 1,500 years before Christ, back here. About 1,000 years before Christ would be King David. Okay, that gives you a good way to kind of remember 1,500 years Moses 
a thousand years King David. Now, King David's son Solomon had another son that reigned and was a knucklehead, and it resulted in the splitting of Israel into two kingdoms. Okay? The reason I want to take the time to do this, even if you're familiar with it, is you can't be overly familiar with it. It's, it's a gob of our Bible deals with this section. And it is largely underdeveloped because it's a little bit complicated and it's a little bit hard to teach. But we're going to do the work. We've got work, work gloves on and work boots and overalls, remember? So we've got the northern kingdom of Israel and we've got the southern kingdom of Judah. Okay? Isaiah is a prophet to Judah primarily. He's got some messages for Israel, but he's primarily a prophet to Judah. Okay? Now, fast forward about 300 years, the kingdom is split into the Israel kingdom to the north and Judah kingdom to the south. And fast forward about 300 years is where we've landed these last few weeks. We've met three kings. King Ahaz is the king of Judah. King Pekah is the king of Israel. And King Rezin is the king of Syria. We also met a fourth king that we'll look at here in a moment. Named Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria. Now, some background for you. This is what Isaiah has been dealing with. In chapter 7, he's been talking to this guy, King Ahaz, saying, Man, you need to trust me and trust that I'm going to protect you. Okay, you may see that, pay attention to these arrows here, and what was written out here that's cut off says the threat. There's a threat from these two kingdoms, king of Assyria and the king of Israel, to come down and lay siege to Jerusalem and to kill and replace King Ahaz. Okay, so King Ahaz is scrambling for a plan to protect himself. Go ahead and put that next slide up. He's scrambling for a plan to protect himself and is not willing to trust God and believe God's promise that I'm going to protect Judah. Okay, so what he does is he makes a deal with the king of Assyria, his name is, name is Tiglath-Pileser, to protect him from Pekah and Rezin. So you see these arrows come up? Okay. Now, you can go on to our scripture. Well, no, actually, leave that up here just for a second. I want to give you some aliases. You're going to need these aliases these morning. Let me just give you this little two-second pep talk. Remember last week we said people that study and engage Isaiah um, aren't lazy people. You can't be lazy and get anything out of Isaiah. you got to do some work. So let me give you some aliases that you're going to hear just even in these verses that we're going to deal with in the first ten verses of chapter 8. Some aliases for Pekah. He's also referred to as the son of Remalia. Son of Remalia. You'll see that this morning. So you need to know who we're talking about or you get lost in the story. Okay, some aliases also for Israel is Ephraim. That's the southern pronunciation. The Hebrew pronunciation is Ephraim, but I don't like the sound of that, so I go with the southern name, Ephraim. Okay, uh, this Israel is also called Ephraim. It's also called in this chapter Samaria. Those are aliases for Israel. Pekah is also called the king of or the, the son of Ramalia. Israel is also called Ephraim and Samaria. Syria, on the other hand, is also called Damascus. Okay, you ever driven around a town where streets are named different things in different sections of the street? Like you're driving through town, and then you're like, oh, this is named here now, or named this here, and then you drive a block further, and it's named something else. That's what Isaiah's like. And if you're not paying attention, you get lost. Okay, so those aliases, Syria and Damascus are the same, synonymous. Okay, Israel, Ephraim, and Samaria are synonymous, or at least used interchangeably. Pekah is called the son of Romalia. Okay, now you can go to our scripture. 
Okay, we did our work, did our little schoolwork here, and now we can move on. A little story recap. Chapter 8 is a collection of three oracles. Okay, three oracles. I'm going to give you a little bird's eye view of chapter 8 because we're going to spend the next three weeks in chapter 8. Three oracles. The first one goes verses 1 through 4. The second one goes verses 5 through 10. We're going to look at both of those today because they both deal with the same thing. The third oracle is verses 11 through 15. And then in verses 16 through the end of the chapter, Isaiah is sort of dealing with the significance of these oracles. Okay, The message has shifted from chapter 7, where Isaiah is speaking to King Ahaz, to chapter 8, where Isaiah is speaking to the nation of Judah as a whole. He's gone from speaking 101 with Ahaz to now speaking to all of Judah together. In chapter 8, just kind of a a sense of what to look for in chapter 8, it is the developing darkness for the light of the world to be born in chapter, or to be prophesied in chapter 9. I don't know about you, but I like a flashlight at midnight. I got no use for a flashlight at high noon. Chapter 8 is the developing midnight. That's the context for the good news of the prophecy about the birth of the Christ child. So we're going to do the work and turn the lights down. And hopefully by the end of chapter 8, it will be almost like a darkness that could be felt. If anybody knows that reference, you know that a darkness that could be felt is a beautiful context for an exodus and for a delivery and deliverance. Okay, so chapter 8, over the next three weeks, we'll be turning the lights down, darker and darker and darker. Now, we're also going to meet this morning the third child of our little fall study, the third child. He's got an awesome name, too. You're going to love his name. I expect to hear many kids that are boys born to have this name. All right, all, all that was preliminary work. Let's get into it. And we're going to move pretty quickly through the unpacking of the first 10 verses. Okay, and then we have a one-point sermon. Awesome. Okay. Y'all with me? Everybody tracking? Everybody tracking? I'm seeing this. I'm talking to the finance guy at the back. I'm, I'm going to see everybody tracking. Okay. All right. Chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Meher Shalal Hashbaz. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberachiah, to attest for me. Now, let me summarize these couple of verses for you. Isaiah is being told, God's telling Isaiah, all right, now you've had a message for Ahaz, but now you have a message for all of Judah. So get you one of those big poster boards from Walmart. Okay, get some of those big, dark uh, markers, and don't write in bad handwriting. Use some good handwriting that's highly legible because I want everybody to see this. And what I want you to write on there is I want you to write, Belonging to Meher Shalal Hashbaz. And on top of that, I'm going to have some witnesses come alongside that see you write this name. Now, the name that he's writing there is the name of his second-born child who hasn't even been conceived yet. Okay, he's having him identify the name of his second-born child, write it on a big poster board for all the world to see, all of Judah to see, and two witnesses. He calls together a couple of guys here just to witness. He wrote this down before the birth of his son okay, to prove the validity of it. Now, the name. 
Meher Shalal Hashbaz. It's a little bit long, so I'll understand if you don't name your kid that. But let me just tell you what this name means, because it's pretty awesome. The name means speed the spoil, hasten the prey. Sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? Speed the spoil, hasten the the prey. Now, I know that might sound kind of ancient, kind of old-fashioned language for you, so let me put that into 2017 terms for you so you can kind of conceptualize what's actually being said here. That would be like a boy being named in 2017, and his name is Bring On The Booty Kicking. That's the 2017 version of Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Speed the spoil Hasten the prey. In 2017, it would be, this is my son, bring on the booty kicking. You all understand why here in a moment, why he's named that. Okay, let's look at verses 3 and 4. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. He's speaking of Mrs. Isaiah, okay? And they have a second son. Sure enough, after the poster board is written, he has a second son. He, and the Lord said to me, call his name Bring on the booty kicking. Meher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Now what he's saying here, listen to what he's saying. While the boy is too young to talk, before he can ever even say mommy or daddy, the Assyrian king, Tiglath-Pileser, put that slide back up. I showed you that image of the deal Ahaz made with this king of Assyria to go whip up on these kings that were threatening him. Okay, well, this boy's name is a promise and assurance that that's going to happen before the little boy can even say mommy or daddy. And in fact, in 732 B.C., Damascus is destroyed and Syria is defeated. A few years later, Israel is defeated and Samaria is taken. Okay, Before the boy can say mommy or daddy, Damascus is defeated and Israel is threatened. Okay, the king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser, you can turn that off now. Tiglath-Pileser is starting his raids into Israel, into the northern kingdom. Before little Meher Shalal Hashbaz can even say mommy or daddy. Now, here's what's interesting about his name at this point. As the story's unfolding at this point, as you're seeing Tiglath-Pileser whip up on Syria and Ephraim, Isaiah's son's name looks like it's meant for Syria and Ephraim. Okay, if you lived in Judah and you saw the poster board and you saw Isaiah walking around with it and you saw it in clear handwriting belonging to Mayor Shalal Hashbaz, you understood what it meant you would connect it to Syria and Israel, or Ephraim, and go, man, they sure did whip up on them. Tiglath-Pileser sure did whip up on them, and it's going pretty well. This plan that Ahaz has concocted is looking like it's going great. Now, remember, this is a man-made, man-contrived, faithless plan, but it's looking like it's genius at this point. And you're going to see later on in the passage this morning that Judah is actually celebrating how that's going. They're probably thinking at this point that Mayor Shalal Hasbad is pretty awesome because he's named after what's going on with these kings that threatened us. And Ahaz, man, what a shrewd guy. 
he made a wise decision making a deal with this foreign king, Assyria, king of Assyria. And man, I just imagine at this point that the God of pragmatism was just as much alive then as it is now because we can find ourselves asking and answering the question, if it works, it must be the right thing to do. And so far, it seems to be working. But I'll give you a little heads up, it's not the right thing to do. I'm imagining what life is like for Isaiah at this point in his ministry. He's already been told this is going to be a really tough ministry. But I'm imagining for him at this point, after this first oracle of chapter 8, by this point where he's seeing the people dismiss God, that it's probably feeling a lot like the ministry of Noah as he's building the ark, as he's preaching. And yet in Matthew 24 it says, Before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. I can just imagine that as Isaiah is preaching a message, you need to trust in the Lord. You need to believe in the Lord. The people are probably looking at him going, hey, Ahaz is doing a pretty good job. Thank you very much. You need to shut it, Isaiah. You need to be quiet. My boy Ahaz has set up this deal with Tiglath-Pileser, and he's whipping the you-know-what out of these boys to the north. So you need to button it. Now, the thing is, though, Isaiah knows that Mayor Shalal Hashbaz's name was meant for resin, okay, in Syria and Pekah in Israel, but that's not all it was meant for. Isaiah knows, ironically, that a flood is in fact coming. A flood is coming to Judah. So his ministry at this point is a lot like Noah's. And we'll see it here in this second oracle. The second oracle is what I would call flood oracle. Let's look at it. Beginning in verse 5. The Lord spoke to me again. We don't know how much time passed at this point, but we know some period of time has, has passed, probably long enough to see that, well, his son is born by this point. Probably enough time has passed that he's seeing that the people are still, still rejecting God. God has, through, through Isaiah, called them to believe the Lord, yet they're still rejecting God. And let's see what happens. The Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shaloah that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Ramalia. Remember, that's an alias for Pekah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land Oh, Emmanuel. Now, I enjoy a beautiful illustration. And I enjoy in this passage, in this book, at this point that Isaiah provides, God provides through Isaiah, a beautiful illustration of what it means to trust in the Lord. Let me show you this. Just let me, I'm going to give you a brief glimpse and then we're going to spend uh, more time in it looking at application. Let me just introduce you to two bodies of water. First of all, the waters at Shaloah in verse 6. The waters at Shiloh was an unimpressive water source for Jerusalem. I mean un unimpressive, I mean unremarkable. In fact, a few years ago, Brad Cardwell and I got the chance to go to Jerusalem. And we went to these waters. And I hardly even remember it. I, in fact, I'm not even sure if we went. I think we went, 
because I saw a picture, and I'm like, yeah, I think we went there. It was unremarkable. Keep that in mind about the waters of Shiloh. Unremarkable. It's a little water source that is, that is fed by the Gihon Spring into Jerusalem, and it says these waters flowed gently. It sounds quaint, doesn't it? Sounds tranquil, even. But this is how God is illustrating his gently flowing but continual promise to David to protect Judah. But here's the sad part. The people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem that drank from this little spring every single day as their water source rejected this spring as it's the picture of trusting God. They refused, it says, the God-provided waters of the waters of Shiloh. And instead, they opted for the waters of what's in chapter 7. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river. This is speaking about the Euphrates. It's clearly, contextually, a connection to to the nation of Assyria, to the Assyrian army, in fact. The Euphrates is a very large, powerful, flowing body of water. And Assyria is just across the Euphrates, so the illusion is pretty straightforward and clear. Now, the floods of the Euphrates were terrible and devastating, and maybe still are. I don't know if they've contained it, or, but in this time, it was devastating. Much like the Assyrian army sweeping into your land. It would cause some serious devastation. Now, Isaiah here, though, is indicating that this river that washed away your enemies, Pekah and Rezin, Syria and Israel, is going to overflow its banks and drown you, Judah. Think about that. You've got to see this to get the rest of the morning. If you've paid attention up to this point and you're connected, you've got to get this. The danger here, he says, these waters that have rushed into the north and defeated your enemies, Judah, they're going to overflow their banks and they're going to come into your house and your home and they're going to drown you and wash you away. I imagine those waters of the Assyrian army of the rushing Euphrates were pretty fun to watch from down south as Tiglath-Pileser and the Assyrians are destroying their enemies. But then when you realize, oh, wait a minute, this thing is overflowing its banks and it's coming directly at us. I was just trying to personalize it a little bit and imagine what this might be like. It might be like a family that lives in a real rough neighborhood. And they face, you know, different threats, different sorts, physical threats. So they actually uh, get a big old dog. And they start feeding this dog meat. I'm not going to identify the breed of the dog because somebody might have that breed in here and they think I'm picking on them. We just imagine it being a big old scary dog and they're like feeding this dog meat. Raw meat. We're not even going to mess with cooking it. And we're going to put on this dog this big old chain, like a kind of chain that Jeff Ott would have hanging off of his Land Cruiser or something. Big old crazy chain, like nautical chain or something. Give him a big old neck, shoulders, make him real tough, you know. Kick him, make him mean. And then when you get threatened, you know, this family that has this big dog, Rosie, we'll just give her a name. We had a pit bull named Rosie when I was a kid. Rosie. When, when your family's threatened, Rosie just rips those, those bad guys to shreds. You're like, man, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool until Rosie then turns on you. And that's what's happened here. You made a deal with it with Tiglath-Pileser, Ahaz. 
But guess what? The Assyrians are going to turn on you. Rosie is coming after you. But here's the good news of verse 8. There's always good news. Isaiah has these ominous passages, but then there's these little beautiful threads of hope. And here's a beautiful thread of hope here in verse 8. This flood is going to sweep on into Judah. It's going to overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. That phrase, the outspread wings, is what it looks like when a flood spills over into land and starts filling into all the terrain features, the little undulations, and it creates almost a winged look, like feathers that are filling the land. But there's a promise in here. This flood of the Assyrian army is going to spill over into Judah. But look, the good news is that Emmanuel is going to survive. The water is going to come right up to your neck. But guess what? God's remnant, God's people, Emmanuel, will survive the flood of the Assyrian army. We're going to come back to that later on in the morning. The last couple of verses of this Oracle are pretty easy, pretty straightforward. Be broken, you peoples. Be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. The message there is that judgment is coming to Judah, but God will preserve his remnant. God will preserve his people. Remember, we called them last week, Emmanuel. Now, for the application, I told you a one-point sermon. This is it. This is it. We've done the hard work, and now we're just this big lob that's just served up, this alley-oop, this basketball right by the goal. It's right here. So let's just jump into this and see what happens. We're going to look at these two bodies of water. That's the point of this passage. Isaiah provides us a contrast of two bodies of water, and it is beautiful. I want to develop these just for a moment, developing the point that faith in God doesn't look at all like faith in the world. Faith in God doesn't look at all like the things that we often trust in in the world. These two bodies of water, the waters of Shiloah, they're spring-fed from the Gihon Spring. Put that first picture up. This is the Gihon Spring, really an unimpressive little body of water that flows by the Kidron Valley. This little body of water is a blessing from the Lord. It actually brings water to Jerusalem. But again, I told you earlier, it's not very impressive. Tiny little body of water. In fact, later on, uh, there's a point in this spring where water passes through a hole about the size of a quarter. And at one point during Hezekiah's reign, later on in this story, later on in Isaiah, Hezekiah tried to open up that hole to get more water to Jerusalem. And guess what? The water flowed less. And then he was like, ooh, I better not mess with God's provision. So he started filling the hole back in until it got back to quarter size. And then it started flowing again. Sounds like God, doesn't it? Hezekiah, don't you mess with what God is doing for you. And that's the picture for Jerusalem. This little spring feeds Jerusalem. And it's simple and it's unimpressive. But guess what? It's also vulnerable to the enemy. If somebody's going to lay siege to Jerusalem, this is the first thing they're going to go after. And that may be why we saw Ahaz out surveying the aqueducts in the last chapter. Okay? It's vulnerable to the enemy. And oh, by the way, it just flows gently. And the people of Judah refused these waters. 
And instead, they opted for the Euphrates, a strong, flowing, and impressive river. And it's just what Judah wants, but too much of what they think they need. Too much of what they think they need. The water illustration is so central to this whole chapter. We've got contrasted here the, shal- the waters of Shaloa flowing gently as God provided resources, protection, promises to Jerusalem. Contrasted with the Euphrates, the mighty, powerful Euphrates, and a man-contrived, faithless plan of Ahaz. That's the contrast. Now, here's the central point of the sermon. Believing God and trusting Him means trusting His way despite the fact that it may not look impressive. If you've made the journey this far, you got the, the, the nugget right there. The nougat, as, as Scott would point out. That's the nougat. That's, that's the central point of the message. Believing God and trusting Him means trusting His way despite the fact that it may not look impressive. And not only might it not look impressive, it might even look vulnerable and weak. Corey, go ahead and put that next one up. We'll just leave it there for the rest of the moment. This is the pool at Siloam. It was later named the pool of Siloam. Earlier it was called the waters of Shiloh. The spring that we saw just now feeds this little pool. This is the place where Brad and I got the chance to see. And I'm telling you, it's unremarkable. I can't, I'm not even really absolutely sure that we went there, but I'm pretty sure. Unimpressive. Unremarkable. But it's what Jerusalem and what Judah needs Believing God and trusting Him means trusting His way despite the fact that it may not and likely will not look impressive. It might even look vulnerable and weak. Now, time for honesty here. When I'm threatened, when my family's threatened, I'm not exactly looking for anything that flows gently. How about you? Anybody here is like makes a beeline to let me find something really simple and unimpressive to help me in this moment of crisis. Man, when I'm threatened, I'm looking for the big guns. Give me the best lawyer. Give me the best doctor. Give me the best counselor. Give me some extra strength medicine. Why do they even sell medicine that's not extra strength? For real, that's my philosophy on medicine. Why would you give me something in regular strength when you got more? Give me some extra strength medicine now. I want the best protection. I want the best defense, and I want it right now. Give me the Euphrates. Anybody else in here? Your first impulse says, man, give me the powerhouse. Give me the goods to protect myself in this moment of crisis. That's my first impulse. But thankfully, as Christians, we don't have to live on our first impulse. Thankfully, as Christians, we can veer back to the gently flowing waters of Shaloah and trust the Lord who's made us some good and steady and gently flowing promises. Amen? Man, I needed to be reminded of that. So God has a pattern of moving this way. And he's expecting his people to trust him when our eyes and our guts and our fears say otherwise. It's his modus operandi. I'm going to give you a brief sample 
uh, just a brief sample. I'm, I'm going to read a passage in uh, Genesis 17. I'm going to mention a few other passages, and we're going to look at something in 2 Kings. So what I would like for you to do is just kind of listen for a moment, and you don't even have to turn to 2 Kings if you don't want. You can listen during this whole time, but if, for those of you that are visual, those of you that like to take notes, you can jot these down. This first passage is in Genesis chapter 17, verse 15. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. That's cool. That's sweet. I like that. That's a pretty name. I will bless her and more. I'm trying to think like Abraham. He's hearing this, okay? Experiencing this like Abraham would have experienced. I like Sarah. That's cool. I will bless her and moreover, I will give you a son by her. (laughs) What? You should, wait a second. What? You will give me a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. He laughed, and he said to himself, uh, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? I mean, wait a second. Shall a child be born to a man who's a hundred years old? And on top of that, Sarah, I like the name, but Sarah, who's 90 years old, she going to bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Oh, that we might go with the Euphrates instead. Come here, Ishmael. Let me, let me serve up a man-contrived plan to fulfill this crazy promise you're making to me. Because it can't possibly work out that way. Come here, Ishmael. Come here, Euphrates. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. This is the way God moves. People of God, we've got to be reminded of this. This is the way God moves, trusting in gently flowing and unlikely and unimpressive streams of promises. We have all kind of man-contrived options in front of us. God's people are called to put those things aside and to trust him, even in the unlikely and the unimpressive. Exodus chapter 4, God uses a stutterer named Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. A gently flowing little stream, unimpressive, a stutterer. In Judges chapter 7, God used Gideon and 300 water lappers to defeat all the Midianites because that's the way he moves. That's his modus operandi. Give me the gently flowing water. In 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah is scared to death. Jezebel's been coming after him. He's defeated the prophets of Baal. He's done some amazing things. And God shows up and there's an earthquake and there's a wind and there's a fire And God's not in any of those things, although he did those things. And what does God show up in? He shows up in the whisper. Because that's the way God seems to move. It's his modus operandi. Zechariah chapter 4 verse 6 says, Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That's the way our God moves. 
man, there's a whole message to the church in Corinth. Paul develops almost the first two chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians, making this point to the Corinthian church. Listen just to these couple of verses. God chose what is low and despised in the world, gently flowing little old streams, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Man, this is God's modus operandi to use the unlikely, gently flowing streams of his promises. But I think what we're prone to is what Naaman was prone to. One of my favorite stories in the Bible I'll share with you here in these next few minutes. From 2 Kings chapter 5, a man named Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Syria. He's a great man. He's a great man and he was a mighty man of valor, but he's a leper. We don't know what this meant. Leprosy in that day could mean all manner of skin condition, but I just kind of like the visual of his nose hanging off. Just imagining what this mighty man of valor was like and how awesome he was and how great he was on the battlefield and leading the army, but his nose is hanging off. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, listen to what she says, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman hears that there's maybe some healing for him in Israel. So he goes to his boss, the king, the king of Syria, and says, Hey, can you send me to the king of Israel so I can get fixed over there? Because this nose thing is a drag. Right? So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Quite an entourage, quite a a, a list of presents for the king. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you Naaman, my servant, with the nose hanging off, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes. This is not good news. For the king of Israel. He says, am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he's seeking a quarrel with me. He's thinking, how in the world can I do that? I'm dead. But then the prophet Elisha, a man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes. And he sent a message to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes, king? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet. In Israel. So Naaman, with his horses and his chariots and his entourage, came and stood at the door of Elisha's little old house. Imagine this moment. This king of Assyria, or this, this uh, warrior general of the, of the Assyrian army, comes with his entourage and all his chariots and all his horses to this little old shack where Elisha lives. Okay, he comes and knocks on the door. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. Okay, Elisha doesn't even come to the door. This king shows up with his entourage and Elisha sends a messenger to the door and says, Go, go tell him to wash in the Jordan seven times and he's going to be clean and restored 
But Naaman was angry, and he went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leprosy. Naaman is illustrating what we are so prone to, wanting a light show when we are in danger. Wanting something awesome and amazing when we're being threatened in some way to come to our rescue. And he is angry. He says, are not the Arbana and the Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. We've given this a term. It's Naamanism, and we all have a dose of it. We all have a measure of it where we want a light show. We want the Euphrates to come to our rescue when we're in danger in some way. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down. He dipped himself seven times in the gently, hear it, flowing waters of the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little wee child. And his nose was stuck back on his face and he was clean in the gently flowing waters of the Jordan. Because that's the way God moves. It's his modus operandi. Now, instead of racing for the power of the Euphrates and our own schemes... Like, like we all do on our first impulse. Instead, we are being called to the same thing that the people of Judah were being called to. To trust God in his simple and unimpressive provision. Like the waters of Shiloh that flow gently. Now... I want to read another passage to you. It's a passage we looked at just now, but I want to call it to your attention, and we're going to have some baptisms at this point. Uh, If I I was really, really, um, let me see the term. If I was a great planner, then maybe at some point I might have planned that we would have baptisms on this moment and this morning with this passage. But I didn't plan it that way which makes it all the sweeter for me because I want to point out a passage to you here in Isaiah chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. Because this people has refused the waters of Shaloah that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, okay, that's the Euphrates, Mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise over its channels and go over its banks, and it will sweep into Judah, and it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. You remember I told you what the good news is in there, is that the Emmanuel, the remnant of God's people, will survive the flood of the Assyrian army. Now, man, if I I had schemed... I couldn't have, if I wanted to, I couldn't have put it together on a better morning. Because God has a habit of delivering his people through watery ordeals. Man, he does it over and over again. 
He put a remnant on a little ark, big ark actually. Noah and his family survived the watery ordeal. Moses was on the little ark, the little tiny wee ark in the Nile. He survived the watery ordeal. Israel passing through the Red Sea survives the watery ordeal. And then that very same water that they're delivered through becomes the judgment of the Egyptian army. God delivers his people through watery ordeals over and over and over again. They cross the Jordan on dry ground going into the promised land. Do you know how many times Paul survived a shipwreck? Just a little heads up for you. Don't ever get on a ship with Paul. Three times. If I'm Paul, I'm like, man, I ain't getting on that ship anymore. Three times. Because that's what God does. He delivers his people through a watery ordeal. And that's what baptism celebrates. Every time we have a baptism, we're celebrating this beautiful picture of God delivering his people through watery ordeals. And this is yet another watery ordeal here in chapter 8 of Isaiah. The Euphrates-like army of the Assyrians is flooding into Judah, but yet God's remnant... Emmanuel will survive because God delivers his people through water. Man, what a beautiful connection for this morning. What a beautiful connection for these upcoming baptisms. We enjoy together in baptism, first of all, that we need to be saved and rescued. The person that steps into this pool and any baptistry, any pool, any context, any lake, whatever it might be, body of water and is baptized. It's saying that. I need rescue. I am in danger and I need to be saved and rescued. And through this watery ordeal, through this ceremony, I am making an appeal to God for a good conscience through the finished work of Jesus Christ. That is my rescue. Being united to Christ by faith. That is my only rescue through the watery ordeal. Not my works. I can't be good enough to be delivered through the water. I can't swim well enough. I don't have aqua lung or any tanks. I'm going to drown in the judgment of God's holiness. But I need an out. And that out for us is Christ. Union to Christ by faith. And God delivers those who believe him and trust him through the watery ordeal. God delivering his people through watery ordeal. I, we could have, couldn't, have, couldn't have planned it better than the Holy Spirit orchestrated that this morning. And it was a treat to incorporate that into our message. At this point, I realize you might be wondering what are the waters of Shiloh for us. You've been in them for the last hour and 40 minutes. This is the waters of Shiloh. This is God's best for his people. To to hear the priest's word together. To sing true things back to him about him. Reminding one another of who he is and what he's done. To fellowship with one another. To baptize those who join us. And to sup together. That's the waters of Shiloh. If you're looking for something else... Here's the bad news. You're looking for the Euphrates. This is what he's using to save and equip and grow and shepherd and guide and send his people. This right here. What a relief that it doesn't have to be impressive. Right? What a relief 
We can just be normal people that are just walking with the Lord. And that that what he will use to be the simple, unimpressive, unremarkable waters of Shiloh. For our supper this morning, I'll take you to John chapter 7. And it's just so fitting. It's on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Something happened at the feast at this last day. There was a ceremony. Part of the ceremony is they would go gather up water from the pool at Siloam. Okay, remember I told you that's the waters of Shiloah that were later renamed the pool at Siloam. They would gather it up in a golden pitcher. Gather up just envisioning this happening. There actually is a pitcher. We could actually do it, but I won't. That'd be weird. We'll just imagine it. Gathering up a golden pitcher of water from the pool of Siloam. Okay, and then they walk back like a procession, like a parade to the altar and they take that water and they pour it over the altar. Whoosh! And what is it? And on this day, at this moment, it's a way that the people of God can celebrate God's provision over centuries in this little pool is a picture of his provision. Now it's at that moment that Jesus said these words. Listen, on the last day of the feast... The great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. It's so fitting that he says, This thing that God has blessed you with over the centuries, I'll now be that. I'm the fulfillment of this thing being a shadow. This pool at Siloam is just a shadow of what I am to you now. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. It's such a fitting moment on this last day of the ceremony. This last day of the feast, where water's poured over the altar, he says, I'll be your new Shaloa. I'm your waters now. Trust in me. I'll be enough for you. Every week when we take the supper, that's what we're celebrating, is that Christ is our Shaloa. He is our waters, and that's all we need. And to the world, it's likely foolishness. It is, 1 Corinthians tells us. But to us, it's the power of God. So let's distribute the elements and we'll take and eat and drink. If you're trusting Christ as your Savior and Lord, if you're in those waters with us, or you're in waters, you don't have to be a member of Crosspoint, but if you are trusting Christ as your Savior and Lord, maybe that took place today for the first time. Maybe you're like, man, this is true. I, I sound like, you know, I, I want to trust this Christ and trust this God that what he's done for us in Christ it will be enough, that there will be our provision and our security and our safety, um, then if you're doing that with me, let's take and eat in faith. Let's take and drink in faith. God, I recognize that we can find security in so many things and find ourselves trusting in so many things that are not you. Lord, I pray that you would actually... um, pry us from those things, that you would strip us from those things that we trust in or strip us of them so that we would learn to trust you more. And Lord, I pray that this morning as a result of this beautiful, simple little illustration from Isaiah, 
that we'll know what to expect, what that trust looks like. It's unimpressive, ordinary, simple, unremarkable, but man, it's gently flowing, gently flowing. We love you and we're thankful. In Christ's name we pray, amen.